I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part two in the series, More of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that his disciples would receive power, the very same power Jesus himself wielded to perform miracles, heal the sick, raise the dead. Strange, then, that many disciples of Jesus feel anything but powerful. How do we access the same power that was in Jesus when we feel powerless in the ordinary routines of faith? Last week, we began a new series that has been years in the making. It's not an exaggeration. Years in the making at Van City Church, and it's called More of the Holy Spirit. Now, the plan for this week and next week is to begin to outline a biblical theology of who the Holy Spirit is. A biblical theology is when you kind of trace a motif of a certain topic or person or whatever through the entire scriptures to build out a theology based on the Bible of that person or thing. Then, with that foundation built, biblical theology of the Holy Spirit... We'll get into the stuff that the Spirit does, things like prophecy and healing, miracles, all that. Now tonight, I want to begin with this working descriptor of the Holy Spirit. So if you're taking notes, start with this. The Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. I didn't make that up. It comes from a massive work by a scholar called Gordon Fee, and it is, I think, the most simple helpful way to describe the person of the Holy Spirit. The, per- the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. Or put another way, the Holy Spirit is God's person, God's power, and God's presence. Now, last week, we talked about that first aspect, the Spirit as God's person. We talked about the way that Jesus, when talking about the Spirit, referred to the Spirit as a he, not an it. And by that, we don't mean to argue that the Spirit is male, but that the Spirit is a person, not an abstract concept. And that matters because you can engage in an active and dynamic relationship with a person, which is good news. You can't be in relationship with a conceptual force. So last week was the person of the Holy Spirit, a he, not an it. Tonight we'll cover the power of the Holy Spirit, and next week we will talk about God's presence in the Holy Spirit. So with all that, let's get into Luke chapter 1. I'm going to do a lot of reading, so hang in there. Let's read beginning with verse 30, which is a scene from the Christmas story. Get excited. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 30. This is dropped right into the middle of that exchange. It says, the angel said to her, Mary, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. All that's familiar enough. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants, that's Israel, forever. His kingdom will never end. So this angel, this angel or this messenger from Yahweh shows up, tells this poor, ordinary teenage girl that she is going to give birth to the Messiah, Israel's long-awaited saving king. The Messiah was to be David's descendant, so that's covered. But notice, here we learn that he will also be, and I quote, the son of the Most High, which is weird. And Mary has other questions. She looked down at verse 34. Mary says, How will this be, she asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. 
Simon Ponsonby, who's an Oxford theologian, writes a lot about the Holy Spirit, says this about this passage. He writes, it is the Holy Spirit as the immediate divine executive, the agent of God's will who weds the eternal son with mortal humanity. The creative spirit who hovers over creation overshadows Mary, creating, conceiving, and connecting God and blood making out of Mary's matter what was not there before. The Spirit performs a regenerative and recreative work. This new human life born of Mary is the old humanity from Adam's seed, which is joined to the eternal divinity of the Son by the action of the Spirit. Now, I realize that's really wordy, but notice the link in this story between, uh, the story from Luke between power and the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be on Mary, and the power of the Most High will envelop her. This is one amongst many examples in the scriptures where power and the Spirit are synonymous. Let me show you another one. Turn over just a page or two to the right to Luke chapter 3. When you're there, skip down to verse 21. Luke 3, 21 says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too, and he was, as he was praying, heaven was open, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, looked kind of like a dove. So the spirit that was on Mary, from just a story back, is now on Jesus. Okay, we talked about that story last week, but watch this. Turn over to chapter 4 and read verse 1. So after that story about the baptism, this happens. Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Skip down to verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee after the whole temptation in the desert, all that happens. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling him, unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. This is a prophecy from Isaiah 61. This is hundreds of years before Jesus. Verse 18, Jesus reads, The spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me. So this is where we get our language around the Messiah. Messiah is a word that literally means anointed one. In the ancient world, there were all sorts of customs of anointing individuals with oil. Oil would be poured out over a person as a symbol of that person being anointed with God's spirit. And this was a profound artistic symbol of God's unique work in and through a given person when they were anointed. So the term Messiah was a title used to describe one person on a coming day, a special person on whom God's spirit would be to do something unique and powerful in the world. So in other words, this is a prophecy about the Messiah. It goes on, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone on the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
So this is Luke, the author of this biography. It's his way of saying that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one from Isaiah 61, for whom Israel had been waiting for centuries. This, of course, makes enough sense to most of you, but stay with me. According to Luke, the way that Jesus accomplishes the work of the Messiah, preaching the gospel, healing the blind, setting people free, all that, is, as we read in verse 14, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you guys to bear with me for the next few minutes, do a little uh, theology work. You guys all right? You feeling sharp and everything? Great. Thank you. Um, This is crucial stuff, so try and pay attention. Starting here in this story in Luke 4 and moving on through the subsequent passages of this biography of Jesus, the reader finds story after story after story of Jesus doing miraculous stuff. So he heals sick people, blind people have their sight restored, paralyzed people get up and walk. Jesus knows things that should be impossible for him to know. Dead people get resuscitated, all that. Now you, as the reader can interpret these stories in one of two ways, one of two major ways anyway. The first is to interpret these stories as proof that Jesus is God. This has been the popular reading of these stories, at least in the Western world and at least for the last 300 or so years. Now, prior to the Enlightenment, it was more common for ordinary people to entertain more of a spiritual worldview. Ordinary natural phenomenons were attributed to the involvement or the outworking of God or the gods, whatever it might be. Now, post-enlightenment, many of the same people now had scientific explanations for why the sun came up or why crops grew, which is all fine and good, but this inevitably led to a more widespread secular understanding of the world. Thus, after the enlightenment, there rose two categories to describe uh, certain modes of understanding and describing the world and life in the world, natural and supernatural, meaning an event, natural means an event governed by scientific laws and principles, that's easy enough, and supernatural or supranatural, above natural, means without natural explanation or miraculous. And in the post-enlightenment world of these disparate categories, there rose an anti-supernatural sentiment. It's kind of like, well, now we know better, they didn't. We no longer need miraculous or divine explanations for things that we can understand with scientific categories. And this wasn't even necessarily an atheistic worldview. It was more like something called deism. The conceit was like, well, God may exist, but he or she or it isn't involved in the mechanics of the cosmos. We have categories for understanding those things, and they have nothing to do with God, whatever God is. Now, you can deduce the effect uh, said understanding had on the way that we read the Gospels. If the supernatural worldview was no longer tenable, and if Jesus' supernatural feats proved he was God, then it logically follows that Jesus was not God. So in the wake of all that, Christians were freaking out. For the majority of Westerners, a core and necessary tenet of their entire faith was being called into question and then dismissed. Jesus did miracles to prove he was God. Miracles aren't real. Jesus wasn't God. And as a rebuttal to that, they simply directed the attention of naysayers back to the Gospels. Well, how do you explain this? Well, read the Gospels. Look, Jesus did miracles. It's right there in the story. He must be God. And while that approach was uh, likely well-meaning, And while all disciples of Jesus have always held that he is indeed the embodiment of the creator God in the flesh, this defense presents a handful of big problems. 
For one, Jesus is not the only person in the Bible that does miracles. Uh, heck, Elijah is one character in the Bible who does lots of the same exact miracles as Jesus. No one argues that Elijah was God. We hold that he was a prophet. He was anointed by God's Spirit. The Spirit of God was on him. Even after Jesus, if you read the story, his followers go on to do all the same kinds of miracles that Jesus did. And to this day, all around the world, we still hear and read and see stories of miraculous things being accomplished by disciples of Jesus. I have seen many of them myself, believe it or not. And we don't argue that Peter or Paul or modern missionaries or evangelists are God in the flesh, but that the Spirit of God was and is at work in and through them. So all that to say... The second, and I would argue better way, many scholars have argued to read the miracle stories of Jesus is as signs of the inbreaking kingdom of God. Through God's anointed one, the Messiah, on whom the Spirit rests, the kingdom is arriving in power. So when Jesus does miracles, it's not primarily to prove that he's God, though some of that inevitably happens in the process. Instead, when Jesus does miracles... It is to demonstrate that the long-awaited kingdom of God in which the sick are healed and the blind see and people are set free, have fi it has finally begun to arrive. So, if we were to ask the question, how does Jesus perform miracles? The answer is not because he's God, but the answer is, as Luke himself wrote, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, stay with me for one more minute. When God became a human in Jesus, in theology it's called the incarnation, he set aside his God power, as it were, in order to stoop to full humanness. Paul writes about this later in his letter to Philippians. He says, Jesus was in very nature God, but did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant. He was, being, he was made in human likeness and found in appearance as a man, all that. So Jesus is not God pretending to be a human being while yet containing all the immediate power of God in and of himself. Jesus was a man. Jesus of Nazareth. And this makes enough sense to most of us. God is, for example, omnipresent, meaning he's at all places at all times. Was Jesus of Nazareth omnipresent? No, thank you. No, he wasn't. He was spatially located, one place at a time. God is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. But if you read the story, Jesus gets tired, and he needs sleep, and he gets hungry and thirsty, and he dies. God is omniscient, meaning he knows all of reality perfectly. Nothing that can be known is unknown by God. He is, in other words, all-knowing. But in all four Gospels, Jesus asks questions, <laughs> Luke flat out says that Jesus, and I quote, grew in wisdom, meaning he had less and then he got more. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus himself admits that he doesn't know when God will finally usher in the renewal of all things. No one does, Jesus says, except the Father. Is that omniscient? No, it's not. When God became human in Jesus, he set aside his God power. He emptied himself in the language of Paul. One of my professors likes to describe this by saying that Jesus laid down the God card. So when Jesus is tempted in the desert, if you know that story, the first temptation is to turn stones into bread, which is weird, is either being hungry or eating bread sinful. 
No, the sin would be to pick the God card back up, which for many of us is not our default reading of the miracle stories. Many of us can't help but read Jesus' godness into those stories, and we inevitably take them to describe things which only Jesus is uniquely capable of. So look at it this way. Here's the fun analogy that I thought of. Here's a clip of some guy who skateboards, (laughs) some guy who's skateboard, some guy who skateboards, he's doing something called dropping in vert. Watch him. It looks maybe easy to you. It's actually tremendously difficult. And to prove it, check this out. Here's me attempting a similarly daring feat. (laughs) Now, to the naked eye, it's hard to tell, but if you look closely, you can see the two clips are different. Um, As an aside, I I realized this week that I found some reason to show that clip of me falling every year at Van City, and I was like, oh, we're running out of time. I got to get that into a teaching. Somehow, so there it was. That was my concussion. Most of us, I wager, watch this fellow called Tony Hawk with resigned acceptance. You know, we think consciously or subconsciously, he can do something that we fundamentally cannot do. He seems like a good skateboarder. I think he has a bright future ahead of him. Most of us assume that our attempt will look more like the second clip of me getting the concussion because we are not Tony Hawk. But if Jesus was truly a human being, from where did he get his power to do miracles, if not just himself? The answer is, of course, the Holy Spirit. So when you read these stories of the sick being healed, the blind receiving sight, even dead people being resuscitated, all that, don't read them and think, sure, the guy doing all that was God. So it makes sense. He was, but that's not how he did it. Instead, read all of those stories as this is a portrait of a human being who is conducting his life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that was all the theology stuff, and here's why it matters. All of that means that Jesus is the prototype for all of his followers. Remember, Jesus teaches us how to be human beings. He doesn't teach us how to be God. We are to emulate Jesus, and it's something that we can actually do. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit to do miracles, and we, as his followers, can be anointed by the Holy Spirit to do the very same things. How do we know this? Jesus explicitly says so. Turn just a bit to the right in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. A lot of Bible tonight. You'll be fine. John chapter 14, let's read a small excerpt of a larger teaching from Jesus. When you get to John 14, read along with me beginning with verse 12. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. So in context, that's miracles specifically, healing the sick, restoring sight to the blind, much more. But listen, it gets crazier. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Now, if you think about it, that's a weird thing for Jesus to say. The leading theory is that Jesus' promise was quantitative, not qualitative, meaning Jesus brings dead people back to life. He's not saying that we'll bring them even more back to life than he did. He's saying that he was one man in one place at one time, but we, his followers, now called the church, will fan out over the world and do the same types of things, but we will do them everywhere. 
Or you could put that another way, we will do greater things. But really, no matter what Jesus means specifically by greater things, one thing is for sure, he doesn't mean lesser things. This is my job, by the way, I'm a professional. I've been to school and all that. I can tell you, greater things does not mean lesser things. I'm qualified to say so. How will we do greater things? Read verse 13. I will do whatever you ask in my name. That means whatever you ask that is consistent with the character and teachings of Jesus so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. I obey my teachings, practice my lifestyle and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That to say, Jesus teaches, if you believe in me, you will do the things that I do, miraculous things. In fact, you will do even more things via the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is exactly how Jesus is with us today so that we are not left, as he said, like orphans. Jesus is still Emmanuel, God with us. But how? And the answer is by the Holy Spirit, with and in us who follow Jesus. Now, follow me one book to the right in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We're almost done with the Bible stuff. You'll be all right. Hang in there. Acts chapter 1. When you're there, read along with the very first chapter and verse. Acts 1.1 says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, if you're new, this is an aside, a footnote rather. If you're new to the New Testament, um, don't feel bad. It is new. <laughs> Get it? Nothing? Really? I was really looking forward to that. All right. So if you're new to the, <laughs> to the story, <laughs> uh, I'll bring it back. It's going to be a running gag. You'll like it more this second. Not tonight, but you'll see. Um, if you're new to the story, Acts is a continuation of Luke's gospel, so it has the same author and everything. And notice he writes that Luke covered all that Jesus began to do and teach, which is fascinating because it implies that though Jesus has returned to the Father, he is going to somehow continue to do and teach things. Skip down to verse 6. They gathered around him and asked him, this is the disciples with the risen Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Are you going to do the Messiah thing now? Verse 7, Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but, listen to this, you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So the Spirit was on Mary, on Jesus, and now the Spirit will be on Jesus followers. That's you and me, to be clear. And he goes on, verse 8, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and outside of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, meaning you will act as living proof of what Jesus taught and did all over the world. And as the story carries on, that's just what happens. Turn just a page or two to Acts chapter 3, and we'll read one such story. Acts 3, verse 1, one day, Peter and John, some of Jesus' disciples, were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg, for those, beg from those going to the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. 
So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus, the Messiah from Nazareth, walk. Taking him by his right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. How about another? Turn, to pay, or turn just a page or two to chapter 5. Read beginning with verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by empty your spirits and how many of them were healed all of them were healed one more time turn to the right to chapter 8 just one more this is now in the story decades later after all that the church has been growing it's now filled with men and women who never even met Jesus or never even heard Jesus teach people like you and me who came into the story later on and by other means uh, uh, by other means and we read in chapter 8 verse 4 this those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip, new guy, went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So there's a pattern in the text. When you read the biographies of Jesus' life, you read about Jesus doing miracles, healing the sick, casting out demons, all by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then, when you read the subsequent stories of Jesus' followers, you read that they did miracles, they healed the sick, they cast out demons, all by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're feeling intimidated or antsy, relax. The call to action this evening will not be, okay, we've heard enough, go lay on hands and raise the dead and drop in on vert ramps and all that. This series is really not about whipping everyone into a frenzy and forcing you into awkward situations for which you are not prepared, so relax. For now, tonight, I want us to begin to wrap our heads around this from the scriptures. The exact same power that was on Jesus, then on Peter, then on Philip, and the early church is now on us who follow Jesus. If you follow Jesus... The same spirit, the same power is in you. Now, of course, a statement like that is much easier to accept intellectually or in theory than it is practically. Maybe you follow Jesus, part of you can accept that in theory you have the same spirit, the same power in you, but experientially, experientially, you don't go around healing the sick or casting out demons. Heck, you're not even sure how to hear God's voice. Or forget all that. You're still wrapped up in a struggle against digital addiction or anxiety or porn, and you're thinking, where the heck is all this power supposed to be? And this is why the personhood of the Holy Spirit is, I think, so important. I was reading this week that one Barna Group survey from a few years ago discovered that over 1,800 self-described Christians 
asked, or they were all asked, and 38% strongly agreed, and 20% agreed somewhat that the Holy Spirit is, and I quote, a symbol of God's power or presence, but not a living entity. Another wider survey conducted amongst more than 3,000 self-professing Christians found that the majority, 59%, said that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. Now, of course, you and I know self-professing Christian means hardly anything specific at all, but even so, these results are at least somewhat indicative of a widespread and disastrous misconception, frankly, a heresy held by many who claim to follow Jesus, because you cannot be in relationship with a force, let alone an idea or a symbol. So all of the New Testament writing about the Spirit's power is very true, but is, it is a person's power, not power drawn from a nebulous, abstract force. So here's an, an analogy. I'll be honest, I've woven in some bonus content that's part of the analogy, not part of the analogy proper, but it's funny, so that's important. And it all starts with Patrick's shoes. Um, if you know Patrick, he's due to works here. And uh, this man likes to wear his shoes until said shoes are good and done for. Like a hole in the toe is nothing, you know. The shoes have to erupt and unravel and no longer remain on his feet. And that's when the shoes are over with. Now, this is a while back, and the shoes of the day were on their last legs. You know, everywhere you go, people are like, oh, man, you need new shoes. You say, they're still on my feet, you know, that whole thing. And then in the middle of that, Cameron's car, another gentleman who works here, his car broke down here at the office, so his faithful co-workers, Patrick and myself, were summoned outside to push his car out of a parking spot and up like a ramp onto a trailer to be towed away. And he was right to summon us. This was a task he could not complete solo. And even with the three of us, it was an undertaking, frankly. It was a lot of back and forth and huffing and stuff. And I know that it was a lot of hard work because Patrick's shoes exploded from the effort. Uh, make sure that there's sound for this clip because this is really important. After the incident, um, he sent us a video to officially commemorate, like in memoriam of those shoes. This is it. Look at that one on the right, it's like, that's hopeless. The other one you probably could have got a little more mileage out of, but I don't know if you want to mix and match at that point. Yeah. So you see, no small undertaking is what I'm getting at. Is it still going? This is what he sent us. All right, just go to the next, just, yeah, go to the next thing. Thank you. So the strength necessary to push this car up this ramp, and it took several attempts, was enough to earn this pair of shoes as Sarah McLaughlin send-off. And the shoes aren't the point, by the way. That was just funny. Point is, thank God Cam had friends, friends much stronger than he, <laughs> to push his broken car. Now imagine, imagine if instead Cam said, well, you know, Patrick's strong, Josh is strong, so let me summon their strength. And then he sort of grimaces and it's like, ah, okay, I've got it, and he just started pushing. It doesn't work that way, if you didn't know, because Patrick and I are not concepts he can draw from. We're people, and we're in relationship with Cam, so to get our help, he asks us, 
and we help him push the car, and it goes where it needs to go. And Cam's part of it, absolutely, but the majority of the work is being distributed over multiple people elsewhere. In the same way, as we grow in relationship with the Holy Spirit, we also grow in the Holy Spirit's power. This means that there is a certain reciprocity or a correlation between our closeness with the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit made manifest in our lives. Or, put another more sobering way, there is a correlation between how we live and the level of the Holy Spirit's power at work in our lives. As an equation, I think it might sound something like this. Intimacy with God plus holiness plus faith equals power. Now, I realize all of those are loaded words, so let me offer a very brief commentary on each word. First, intimacy with God. Now, we talk about this all the time. Something we have, we have to learn and to then put in practice is the pursuit of living in an ongoing awareness of and connectedness to God himself. You don't just fall into that one day. It's something you have to practice. You could call it practicing the presence of God, like Brother Lawrence You could call it contemplation like the Desert Fathers did. You could call it abiding in the vine like Jesus did. You could call it prayer without ceasing like Paul did. Learning to bring your mind and heart back to God again and again through the routine and joy and pain of everyday life. We talk a lot about hearing God's voice at Vance City, but it's about much more than what we do in listening prayer when you specifically ask a question and wait and listen. John Wimber once wrote this about hearing God's voice. He said, when I speak of listening to God's voice, I mean, listen to this, developing a practice of communion with the Father. I love that. Developing a practice of communion with the Father in which we are constantly asking, Lord, what do you want me to do now? How do you want to use me? How should I pray? Who do you want me to evangelize? Is there somebody you want to heal? Sometimes he gives me specific insights about people for whom I am praying. These come as impressions or words or pictures in my mind's eye, physical sensations in my body to correspond to problems in their bodies. These impressions help me know who and what to pray for and how to pray. I love his definition of listening, developing a practice of communion with the Father. Now, it sounds intimidating, but remember, it's not something you just have one day. You practice and you learn as you go. Working to bring your mind back to God throughout the ebb and flow of every day, you have to learn to create rhythms for that very thing to happen more, not less. Intimacy with God. Next in the equation comes holiness. Now, remember, Jesus called God's Spirit the Holy Spirit. But holy is, of course, one of those Bible words we often say without knowing exactly what it means, or we say it meaning other than what the Bible means by the same word. Here's one very simple definition of the word holy, to be set apart for God's special purposes. Another way of understanding the word is as a synonym for unique. So the pursuit of holiness is the work of beholding a culture, a world that is often in defiant rebellion against the way of Jesus, and then you deliberately reject the status quo. You are set apart and unique. Meaning, I don't mean like cultural stuff, like you hide it out and you don't go in, you know, the movies or something like that. I just mean you see things like greed or scrambling for money or 
scrambling for position and prestige. You see social media image curation. You see digital addiction. You see military violence and sociopolitical violence and violence between the right and the left. And you see materialism and excess and lust and porn and hookups and polyamory. And you say no to all that, no to the status quo, so that you can be set apart or holy. So in many ways, you, you may seem much like another given person who does not follow Jesus, and that's fine. But when you get into it and you look at how you steward your money or how you understand your enemies or how you develop your sexual ethic or your approach to parenting or your approach to food or smartphone use, all that, hopefully, you will be unique, to put it simply. So that's the set-apart dimension of holiness. But it's not just that. You're set apart, but for God's special purposes. Holy, holiness can also mean dedicated to the Lord. So you are not set apart for the sake of being unique. You are set apart for God. The reason that you reject consumerism and materialism is so that you can embrace simplicity and gratitude and generosity. The reason that you reject violence and sociopolitical vitriol is so that you can love and bless your enemies. The reason that you reject smartphone addiction and social media fabrication is so that you can embrace silence and solitude and Sabbath and honesty and self-awareness, be present to God and your family and your community. So you're not just not doing one thing, you're not doing one thing so that you can do something else. That's what it means to pursue holiness. And there's a correlation between holiness and how much of the Holy Spirit's power is at work in and through us. Now, don't think of that as like a tit-for-tat kind of thing. Think of it relationally. The idea is not, oh, well, you didn't read your Bible enough this week, so the Holy Spirit won't show up for you. It's not, oh, man, oops, you were dishonest about something today, so no spirit for you, no healing or whatever. It's a relational exchange. Patrick and I didn't go push Cam's car because we evaluated how many things he's done for us that day versus what he's done against us, and then we found the results passable and we showed up and pushed the car. We helped him based on relational factors. He knew where we were at the time to begin with. He knew how and when to ask us. He knew our day and our schedule. We knew what he needed and why, and we're friends, not estranged from one another, not fighting, not giving each other silent treatment, so we're in good standing. We look after one another, so he asked, and we showed up. Relational which means consistently practicing the way of Jesus, obeying the teachings of Jesus. Not perfect by any means, but living in such a way that you're working to obey the teachings of Jesus is how we grow in holiness, and thus how we grow in the power of the Holy Spirit, which also means that every opportunity to disobey Jesus or to sin is adversely an opportunity to grow in intimacy with God's Spirit and to access Him and the power of the Spirit in your life. When you have money, and you earned it, so you want to keep it all, or you want to spend it all for you, you want to buy new clothes, or get a new subscription to Netflix, or nice stuff for your house, whatever it might be, but instead, you divest the excess you give to the church, you divest funds to buy someone else dinner, or to sponsor a kid, or to help someone in your community. When you're tired and your mind feels dull and you want to poke mindlessly at a smartphone feed, but instead you turn it off and put it away 
and you look your kids or your spouse or your friends in the eyes and you talk to them or you sit in the quiet with God. When you want to linger on the image of a beautiful man or woman to turn them into fodder for your imagination for lust or to compare them and play who's the hottest or transforming people made in God's image into objects. But instead, you look away or you honor them or you remember them as people, not things. When you badly want to join in with a group of friends who are with their words eviscerating someone who isn't there, someone so frustrating, they're gossiping behind the veneer of venting and just getting it out, but you don't. You bless them instead. You pray for them and for yourself. When you're alone and no one would know, and it's just you and your phone or laptop, and you want to wander into certain corners of the internet, but you close the computer instead, you turn off the phone instead, each opportunity to do evil is also an opportunity to grow in holiness and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So intimacy with God plus holiness plus faith. In 26 of 29 healing stories throughout the Gospels, faith is mentioned specifically. You get things like your faith has made you well or because of your faith or I have not found such great faith in all of Israel and on and on the list goes. Jordan Singh writes this, God's main goal is to encourage us to trust his love. So it makes perfect sense that he would arrange things so that power flows most easily through those who most fully trust his compassionate generosity in providing it. So I'd put it this way. Miracle-working faith believes that God is genuinely eager for the goodness of miracles. And faith, please hear me when I say this part, faith is not trying to psych yourself up to believe something that's unnatural for you to believe. It's not like there's a little thermometer hovering above you and you have to make it, you know, the red part hit the top and then pray and then boom, miracles. Faith is about working to trust that God wants to do stuff. He wants to talk to you. He wants to heal people. He wants to show up and then demonstrating your willingness to believe such a thing. How do you demonstrate your willingness to believe such a thing? Usually via risk. So that risk could be big or small. It could cost you very little or cost you a lot. When my kids have a stomach ache and I lay hands on their you know, little stomach and pray, in the name of Jesus, all pain cease. Am I 100% convinced that the pain will stop then and there? Nope. But I have faith that God wants to heal. So I do it every time. And then every time I say, how do you feel now? Did it stop? No, let's pray again. I've traveled around the world talking about Jesus and I've worked at churches for long enough now that I've prayed for my fair share of people and I have seen some truly outrageous things happen, miraculous stuff happen, really weird, wild stuff happen. I really have. But I've also prayed or been prayed for with no immediate or discernible response at all, no immediate or discernible results at all. So I know it's not a game of trying to somehow convince yourself of results just to get God to show up in the first place. It's learning to trust that whatever happens, God wants to do stuff, so you step out and you ask. It's a risk. 
Every time someone stands up here on a Sunday evening and says something hyper-specific, which happens all the time, they'll say like, oh, we get a sense that there, you know, I don't know, there might be a single mom in here who's struggling with the death in the family and God wants to say something about that, whatever it might be. We know that we could be off. Of course, we know that that could just be us. But we asked and we listened, and that's what came to mind. So we also believe it could be from God. I've prayed for people before and felt like a strong sense of something very specific. And I was like, oh, this is, this is tears are about to flow over this. So I speak up, and I've seen it work sometimes. People brought to tears. You're like, yeah, I'm not me. You know, it's all God. Yeah. <laughs> I really do say, and then repentance, renewal, all that kind of thing, because you're like, man, the Holy Spirit is moving in power. I hear him so clearly right now. And... I've seen that exact same thing happens, like a clearest, clearest day picture, and I speak up and I'm saying, this is what I'm hearing from God, and I can tell on their face. It's like nothing even remotely connected. They're like, oh, I don't know. I'll have to ask about that, which is nice for, no, you're not even close. So the idea is that you just risk. That's the worst thing that happens in that situation. They tell me I'm wrong. I can deal with that just fine. You risk. That's faith. Intimacy with God plus holiness plus faith equals power. And of course, conversely, no intimacy, no holiness, no faith, no power. Or even just a little intimacy, little holiness, little faith, little power. I think that that's how it works. It's not a rigid black and white rule uh, with a guarantee per se, but as a general rule, it works a bit like that. Now, here's the thing to end tonight. All of this can, if you let it, sound a bit daunting but don't think of this as far-fetched, as some kind of standard beyond your reach. Think of it instead as the entry point. That is, start here. You want the power of the Holy Spirit made manifest in your life? Not to do magic tricks. Who cares about magic tricks? You want God's closeness and His healing power. Physical healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing. You want the sound of His voice. You want his guidance and his wisdom over your life and over your family. You want his arms around you in pain and chaos. You want to be able to speak clearly for God with humility over your friends and your family and your kids. You want that in the ordinary rhythms of life as a parent or a spouse or a friend. You want it in your vocation and your hopes and your dreams for the future. Don't, don't you? I know I do. Good grief. Maybe I seem like an easy candidate for such a desire because I lead a church and yes, I want more of God's Spirit as a pastor, as a Bible teacher, no question. But I want more of God's Spirit in every facet of life. As I think to the future, or as I raise kids, and navigate community and relationships, or I react to the madness of the world, what feels like the madness of the world, or celebrate victory, endure suffering, I want to be consistently empowered by the Spirit of God in all of those things. And if you're like me and you want all that, my encouragement is start here. Intimacy with God plus holiness plus faith equals power. Pursue intimacy with God. Make time for Him. Prayer in the morning, prayer before bed. Carve out rhythms to make that happen. We have a practice coming up after the holidays called a rule of life that's about that exact thing, making rhythms, but start somewhere. Even if it's just morning, a few minutes before you go, start somewhere and build from there. Practice holiness. Be different. Don't think of that as like, we think of holiness as like moral perfection or being sinless. I just mean be different. Be unique. Pursue obedience to the teachings of Jesus. 
Don't just seek intimacy with Jesus. Do the things he said to do. Don't do the things that he said not to do. And when you mess up, not if, but when you mess up, confess, repent, meaning turn around and do it again. And then risk. Ask God for stuff. That can feel like a risky thing. Listen to what God says. Make time to listen. Act on what you hear. Pray. Pray for people. Tell people what you think God might be saying with humility and understanding that you could be off sure, but try it. Use your community as guinea pigs. Use your church family as guinea pigs. I will, speaking for myself, I will never feel bummed or put out by someone who comes up to me in humility and says, hey, Josh, listen, I could be wrong, but I think maybe this is something God has to say over you. Are you kidding? More of that, please. I would take that every single week. And my guess is many of you feel the exact same way. And what better, safer place to risk than here, right, with other brothers and sisters who are learning as they go to follow Jesus. The promise of Jesus is you will receive power when the Spirit is on you. So tonight, I want us to ask ourselves, what if we actually believed that was true? Or, here's a scarier, more exciting question, what if we lived as though that were true? So with that in mind, let me just pray and invite God's Spirit to speak over us as we worship. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.